Yo, welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Uh, today's going to be a very special show. I have a buddy of mine and a freedom fighter. He was part of the Canadian trucker convoy protest. Um, this guy's already solidified his sel- himself in, uh, in legends. He, he's been on Tucker. He's been on a huge podcast. I think I saw a, a video of you on Candice as well. Um, and I'm very lucky to have him here today. We're going to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to talk about future of Canada, um, how Bitcoin plays into this. I actually wanted to preface this conversation. I, I saw this in the chat before we even started. Um, and the Bitcoin Rebbe, I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce that correctly. Thank you, Rebbe. Uh, he said, I think you talk about politics too much. It's not relevant anymore. I, I fundamentally disagree with you. Um, I think that Bitcoin is about the separation of money and state. Um, and the state is going to fight back. Um, and if you are not aware or you're not in tune with what they're doing, um, then all of a sudden you're going to be completely caught off guard and you're probably going to want to move to El Salvador. Um, so I, I think that a lot of us want to stand and fight, um, of course, peacefully and, you know, legally and colored within the, all the lines and stuff. And at least I'm trying to do that in the United States. And I know that BJ is, has a major role, um, in doing this in Canada. So, uh, welcome BJ. Uh, happy to have you. I think, I think we've had you on the regular Simply Bitcoin show, but never on the IRL show. No, listen. I'm an OG Simply Bitcoiner, dude. I was here before you did the IRL show. Ooh. So it's good to see you, brother. Good to see you too, man. So uh, a lot has happened, man, since uh, the the uh, the original protest. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on in Canada? What has been the backlash? Has things changed? And of course, I think I know the answer to this question. Have they doubled down or they started to to concede some things? Well, let's start with the general tenor and the mood and the shift in Canada. The fact that the normies are starting slowly to wake up finally. So much so that there's this wonderful book that was written by another Canadian, a children's book that I recommend for Christmas, How the Prime Minister Stole Freedom. And it's kind of like a Dr. Seuss sort of book. So that's kind of... That's the tenor of what's going on. So not only are people who normally would not be um, aware of what's going on, because we've seen this woke nonsense going on for years. Now the average Canadian who's not politically engaged so much now realizes there's something wrong. So what did the, let's go back first to what did the Freedom Convoy accomplish? Well, we got all the provincial or state, but uh, all the provincial mandates were dropped during the convoy. Everybody dropped everything and ran for the hills. Of course, they said, oh, new data shows in two weeks. Not hashtag, nothing to do with truckers, but you know, like, like dominoes, they all collapsed. And uh, the only thing that, uh, only government that held on was the federal government held on to the original mandates and the, um, the data tracking app. And they just dropped it a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. So they finally did what we were trying to get accomplished during the protest. And I would say that's a uh, hashtag, nothing to do with truckers win. So that's one thing. So now what's happening is we have a commission that is investigating uh, what the government did. And it's very important. People seem to lose sight of that. 
in our law, British common law, and American law as well, there is the presumption of innocence. But on the other side of that trade, people always forget this one, there's the presumption of guilt. And the presumption of guilt always lies with the government. That's why we have commissions and investigations and rules of engagement for police officers and the military and all that sort of stuff. So now we've come to a point where there are, there's a commission that is being presided over right now. There are 65 witnesses to be called, including Prime Minister uh, Blackface Diversity Trudeau and the, uh, the Premier Doug Ford, if you remember his brother Rob Ford, who was famous for his crap, crack, crack piping uh, debacle. Uh, he is also being called and he's fighting in court that he doesn't want to testify. Uh, all the police, uh, many of the police superintendents and chief and deputy chiefs and the mayor, they've all been testifying. They've all been throwing each other under the bus. And the police chief yesterday uh, doubled down on postmodernist subjectivist worldviews that uh, he claimed there was massive violence in Ottawa during the protest. And when it was pointed out to them that there were only five incidences of violence in the entire city for two months, he said, well, that's criminal code violence. I was talking about how people were feeling, that they were feeling as though they were being tormented violently and um, that that is, a, that is a form of violence and verbal harassment or verbal violence or the honking as a form of violence. So we've gone full postmodern in Canada, and it came into this commission and failed miserably. And I will be testifying in one of the nine people uh, that are not working for the government. Everybody else works for the government. I'm one of the people who's not working for the government tied to the convoy that will be testifying in the beginning of November, the day after I get together with uh, the Bitcoin group in Ottawa, and uh, we have some beers and some drinks and hang out and we'll talk about my book and Bitcoin and everything that went on in their city. Um, sorry, someone, the, the chat's getting a little crazy. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's interesting comments. Um, okay. Let me so, get, I'm a fed. <laughs> no, just interesting. Yeah. Um, anyways, <laughs> so back to... Uh, Back to what you were saying. Look, I, I think the the battle here, BJ, is between individualism and collectivism. 100%. And I think that we've seen a, a, a huge rise in this collectivist disease. It's responsible collectivism specifically uh, for some of the no, not some of them, the vast majority of genocides of the last century. Um, but I think that as individuals, we've never been able to protect ourselves efficiently, efficiently and effectively uh, because they've always been able to co-opt the, the money um, through the mob, uh, through, you know, their favorite keyword, which is, you know, democracy, 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 democracy. I'm not a big fan of money and democracy. I don't I don't think they they I think money should be neutral, apolitical. Um, but I think that. What's happening in Canada is something that we've seen play out happen so many times. It happened in my country, um, originally where I'm from. And it's always the same trappings and it always goes down the same direction. 
and it's 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 an absolute tragedy but what i see in canada specifically when pierre i can i can't pronounce his last name pierre poliev poliev there we go um when he won the uh, again <laughs> i'm not accustomed to canadian politics but he won the premier right of the conservative party the leader of the conservative party and his comments on central banking printing money and his comments on bitcoin actually gave me hope um and i think the last time you came on the show i i was not feeling good about canada because i was having flashbacks of what happened to venezuela and i was like you i said canada is heading in that direction there's not stopping me there's not stopping it and now you have this populist politician pierre and he's saying all the right things does he actually believe those things that's question number one and question number two is what did you think about justin's comments responding to uh people investing in bitcoin helping themselves from inflation and he's rephrasing it in a way where it's like that's bad that's that's bad for you um so what are your thoughts on all that well let's start with uh prime minister blackface diversity um <laughs> He, uh, I, I did a couple of radio shows uh, discussing him and because I was asked specifically about that. And um, it was very funny to see that he even weighed in on Bitcoin was, uh, was absolutely hysterical. But this is also a politician who said the budget will balance itself. He actually said that in an interview. That was his budgetary policy. And he also was asked about fiscal policy in the past, I don't know, four months. And he said, I don't spend any time thinking about fiscal or monetary policy. Uh, so all of a sudden, he's, he's starting to think about it. I mean, listen, he's an airhead and a, mos a mascot. They just roll him out, much like they roll out, uh, you know, Dementia Joe, because they, they're not actually engaged. They're not the decision makers. We're living in an era, unprecedented, where our leaders are our mascots and the bureaucracy behind them is what's running is uh, what's running things. That's the first thing. Okay. Back to Pierre. Cause I get asked this a lot. Uh, I've met him a couple of times. Uh, he's uh, amazing at giving political speeches or just inspiring speeches. He's, he's very gifted in that, but I'm starting to warn people in Bitcoin because I know that party inside and out and I know how they operate. If he is not saying Bitcoin regularly, then he's not going to do anything. So it's on us in the Bitcoin community in Canada to put additional pressure on him for him to talk about it. Because you know what they do? Because I've been involved in some of this stuff before. The tactic is to tell people, if we don't want to discuss an issue, just say we'll deal with it after we get elected. And that's code for we're not going to touch it because... Well, after they get elected, then they say, oh, well, it wasn't part of our campaign promise. So we didn't make any promises and, and we, we can't be held uh, to account for that. And I've noticed during the leadership race or our equivalent of a primary, when he became uh, leader of the Conservative Party, because we both know some of the people that were helping behind the scenes. You may not know, but, you know, we know some of these people and we're getting him up to speed. And he's an economics guy, so he gets it. He understands it. But it's never the leader that's a problem. It's different than in the U.S. system. It's the party around him is the problem. So, yes, he was very open and vocal and took a risk on Bitcoin, and he got the leadership. I haven't heard him say Bitcoin one time since he became 
leader of the conservative party. Mm. And that's a problem because people we know that are new to this party, that know nothing about this party, don't understand if he's not saying it regularly. If you don't see Pierre Polyev's uh, Twitter account uh, put out hashtag Bitcoin, he's not going to do anything. And the conservatives get really upset when I say this, but I don't really care. I care about honesty and I care about Bitcoin. And we all need to know now is the time to put pressure on him to start being more vocal about it. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really good point. Um, and I think that you're starting to see something very similar in the United States. You're starting to see candidates kind of co-opt or use the, the, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin brand, you know, crypto brand to get a lot of, I don't know what crypto is. I haven't even talked about. That's what I'm saying though, but they're co-opting it and they're using it to, you know, get garner votes because they know that specifically the younger generation, a huge percentage of them are all are, are holding the, the, these things. Right. Um, but I think you, you said something earlier that I wanted to talk uh, that I wanted to touch on. Right. And it's this idea of this unelected bureaucracy. Some people call it the deep state. Some I, I call it the deep, the administrative state because it's mm -hmm. right up in your face. They don't even hide it anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's this idea where it's not an idea where it's this system where there's this unelected bureaucracy with who, whatever party wins, it does not matter. It stays there and it's there for life. And I think that fiat specifically the government's ability to have this monopoly on the creation of money has completely funded this beast and it just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now what I believe what this is this fourth turning is all about is it's starting to consume itself. It's reached such a size that it's starting to work against the interest of the people that it's supposed to govern. Do you think that, and, and to tie this in with what you were saying about, um, uh, Pierre, do you think that he will actually effectuate change? Because the only way that I think we end this thing where like there's an actual change that happens is the ending of central banking altogether. The taking away the ability of the administrative state or the bureaucracy or whatever you want to call it to pay itself by printing money, therefore redistributing wealth from the have-nots in the middle class, stealing from them through uh, currency debasement and giving it to themselves. And sometimes they use it to fund wars. Sometimes they use it to fund social programs you might not agree with, or my favorite, sometimes they use it to buy votes. Right. So where's your head on that? Because I know that you're very involved in the political process. Well, the first thing is uh, with the <laughs> the Ottawa protests, one of the reasons they reacted so negatively is because those are the people who live in Ottawa. That's the capital city. They all work for the government. Right. So they're living off of this this fiat system. And I guess it's no coincidence that when they said they saw Bitcoin and caribou, and everything that we were doing, that that was some uh, some red flags for them. In terms of this whole the bureaucracy that runs itself and the deep deep state, uh, you don't know how correct you are. And I'm going to give you one very specific example of that. So, uh, last uh, the last time the conservatives were in power, we had a minister of immigration who I've met and I, I met a number of times. He was friends with a friend of mine. And if you remember during the Syrian war. There was that picture all over of, of that, ki that kid who, um, who died and his body on the beach. And uh, there were, he was the immigration minister at the time. They were, he was being blamed because 
the family was supposed to come to Canada, whatever the case. Okay, fine. So I remember having a conversation with him and then saying, I don't understand something. You have certain immigration policies that you want. Why don't you ever do what you promised to do in your campaign? And he looked at me and said, you don't think I tried? You don't think I tried every day sending a letter to the heads of the ministry that I was in charge of telling them, this is the policy you're to enforce. Enforce it now. And you see what they did? They just ignored me. They're just buying time until mm -hmm. the next election and they'll get the liberals in power and just continue proceeding with the same policy that I'm trying to block them from doing. So you are very, very correct. And I think, I'm hoping with this commission that's going on in Canada, then people are seeing the bureaucracy eating itself, that they're all throwing each other under the bus because they all the police agencies and the city and the federal government, they had one policy that can, it can be summed up in one phrase. They're all being dishonest because they're not telling the truth, which is this one phrase, not my problem. That's what they were all doing. Not my problem. That's why nobody was talking to us because not my problem. That's the police. No, that's the city. No, it's the federal government. No, send it to the PLT. No, the PLT from the RCMP. They do nothing. They, they suck on the rest of us who contribute and pat themselves on the back as the quote unquote, the elite class. And I think what we're seeing is the government in the case of Canada could be cut easily by 80%. And, you know, I grew up with somebody who worked in the government and I have some friends in the government. I hear all these stories about how it just operates itself and uh, it's a scourge on the rest of society. No. And I, and I agree. It's this, this, and, and, and I really, and I actually do blame the money printer. I blame fiat um, because it's like, it's the natural tendency of bureaucracies just to get bigger and to have more and more power. But where I think the, the inevitable clash is is going to happen. And I actually had Troy Cross from the Bitcoin Policy Institute yesterday, oh, yeah. and we were talking about this, is that the people that are in charge of regulating this thing, or, you know, they, they want to, you know, the, the regulators, the politicians that are running on this, actually have the most to lose if this thing succeeds. So really the only ones that will effectuate change are the ones who actually have the integrity and the principles to actually adhere to the promises that they made on the campaign trail. And that's what made me so hopeful about Pierre. But now I'm kind of bummed out a little bit that <laughs> we, it, it, I'm not Canadian, but it seems like, you know, he, he said all the talking points, he said all the right things. He got, you know, he, he became the lead of the conservative party in Canada. And now it's like, all right, guys, thank you so much. You know, it's like, it's history repeating itself. Is it, is the system so beyond repair? that it's just time to, you know what, you guys do that. I'm going to opt out. I'm going to go into Bitcoin, maybe move to El Salvador. What are your thoughts? I don't know that it, it's so, it's at it's such uh, dire straits just yet. I mean, right now, Canada has Hugo Chavez in power and he's got to go. So uh, even if the conservatives are not quite as good as we wanted to them, you know, they we always joke that the conservatives do what the progressives do, do at the speed limit. Um, but at least if we can slow things down, that's the first step. In terms of Pierre's stance on Bitcoin, I mean, has gone on the record during his leadership race, and he hasn't gone back on his word. He hasn't gone back and said, well, 
you know, maybe we shouldn't uh, adopt Bitcoin. She hasn't done that. So at least that's, that's a positive. But politicians, and this is when politicians really get upset at me, they only understand pressure. They only respond to pressure. The minute you're nice to them and you're asking them for a favor, then they can relax and go on to the next, uh, as they call it, stakeholder that's giving them actual pressure. And the way it works in Canada and the US as well, I mean, it's a little bit different here in terms of the operational structure within the lobby of firms, but you get a lobby firm, you hire them. And I already had done some reaching out to a couple of firms about uh, lobbying for Bitcoin. I already got a price estimate, what it's gonna cost. It's gonna cost between 20 and $40,000 a month for a lobby firm to get on the Bitcoin train. They were interested. They were actually interested in the Bitcoin file and um, start lobbying politicians on the, uh, the district, as we call it, or the riding level, as well as the backbenchers and the leadership in the party to lobby Bitcoin. That's how it operates. Unfortunately, you know, what the plebs like you and I and the voters want, uh, that is secondary. The primary is uh, the lobby structure. And right now, uh, Bitcoin is not participating in terms of uh, the lobby structure, at least that I know of, beyond, you know, advising and giving advice and, and knowing, you know, the leadership and a, and a few MPs. But it's the money from lobbyists that really make the difference. And that's what the Bitcoin community needs to do. It needs to build a lobby firm that understands uh, how this process works. And somebody who knows about this, for example, is Jane Adams, who, uh, you know, Jane is still a hardcore Bitcoiner and she didn't get her equivalent of the nomination, but she's involved in policy. She knows how the structure works. More and more people like that who are political nerds like her, I'm not, but she is, uh, more and more people like her need to get around a lot, the lobbying efforts to get Bitcoin, uh, not only on the radar, but an integral part of policy conversations. Yes, and I, I fundamentally agree with that. And that's a slow realization that I've come to over really the last two years. And it's it's interesting because you kind of see that with not crypto podcasts, not shitcoin podcasts, but specifically yeah. Bitcoin podcasts. What, what tends to happen is that they start as technology podcasts and then they slowly evolve into this macroeconomic type of situation. And then you, you're, you're starting to realize, like, why does that happen? Why, why does that natural tendency happen? Well, because you're competing for all the marbles. Right. Mm -hmm. This is about money and power at the end of the day. If we're right mm -hmm. about Bitcoin, Bitcoin becomes the global reserve currency. You are threatening the main source of power of these unelected, uh, un of these, of these unelected bureaucracies. They use that money printer. They use that wealth redistribution mechanism in order to fund themselves. And I completely fundamentally agree with you that there needs to be a grassroots movement, not only in Canada, in the United States, right? For people to rise up and make a lot of these, uh, a lot of these bureaucrats ask, answer very basic questions. Why am I being forced to use a money that is designed to lose value? And why is the US Treasury getting to dictate who am I allowed to transact with and who I am not allowed to transact with? They're not elected, they're appointed. What's going on there? If these questions don't reach the mainstream consciousness, people like Trudeau 
and people in, in those bureaucracies are going to continue doing what they what they what they've always done. There 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 is no change here unless it's pushed forward. And the only reason El Salvador went down that route was because they're not in charge of their own monetary policy because they use the U.S. dollar. Dollarized, so, yeah. So they they had every incentive to choose something like Bitcoin, right? So unless we all want to move to El Salvador, which is I keep saying this, I hear it's beautiful. I it is, and I and I'm and I'm and I speak Spanish, and it's great, whatever. But I guess we're all moving there. Um, <laughs> let's do it. Um, there needs to be an awakening. Th these ideas that we're talking about that. BJ, you woke up to because of what you experienced during the truckers protest. It needs to breach the mainstream consciousness because that's the only way that it could, it will actually effectuate political change in the United States. As long as central banking exists, as long as the Federal Reserve exists, I fundamentally believe that the citizens of that country that have that central bank will always be enslaved to that deep state, to that bureaucratic state, to the administrative state, because they have an unlimited money printer, man. You know? So this is my thoughts on that. Well, in the case of the United States, you guys are far more fortunate because, I mean, normally in the past, we wouldn't have liked these things. But now that we want to affect change and have policy ideas, I don't understand why the Bitcoin community in the United States hasn't pushed for a PAC or a super PAC, you know, political action community. We don't have those in Canada, but you do have them in the United States. And if you set up a PAC or a super PAC, if it got enough money, that is there just to lobby and advocate for policy directly uh, with state and local representatives. That's how you do it. And, uh, you know, you just you just cover you pay for advertising for people who are pro Bitcoin and you support them. And that infrastructure is there for you guys in the United States. I don't understand why. Maybe there's not enough people in Bitcoin yet, or just there's no, not, there's, I mean, we know it's very libertarian, very anti-government. So a lot of those people just don't want to get involved in politics and government. And I, I agree because politics sucks, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's important right now, especially, look, you know, from your family's background, I know from my family's background in Europe in the 1930s, the few that survived, and we keep heading down that path and we got to cut them off and the way to cut them off is you separate the money from the state we've separated religion from state uh, from state in the in the late 1400s it's time to do it with our money and our fiscal policy they can't be trusted and now we have an alternative we have this decentralized ledger that operates on its own there's no need for you know a group of socialists in a bank to think that they can, you know, flip the right switches and rate increase interest rates. So a whole bunch of people lose their homes, but that's okay for the broader macro perspective. It's like, no dude, <laughs> don't touch my money. <laughs> you know, like it, 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 you know, and, and, and you hit the nail on the head. And unfortunately I think that's the, that's the issue that I've seen with most Bitcoiners is, they're right. They have their own private keys. They're right. They run their own node. They are sovereign in a sense. But what a lot of people don't understand is there is no place. There is nowhere else to go if something like the U.S. falls down the collectivism, uh, 
the collectivist path. And BJ, you've been paying attention to politics over the last two years. We were very freaking close, um, specifically in the United States. They almost federalized the elections. They're, they're one or two votes away from that, right? So it's heading, it was heading down that route, and it's so fragile. And I don't think, I do agree with the theory from the sovereign individual that I think over time, Bitcoin will take away the importance of politics. But I think that politics right now, specifically during the transition period, they can make your life a living hell or they can make this transition a hundred times easier for you. Or you could always just move to El Salvador. So I think that's why it's important to have these types of conversations. But anyways, I wanted to pivot a little bit. I have a pleb that asked me a question. Copper, cop. Copernicus, I always pronounce his name uh, wrong, but he he commented on the promo tweet on Twitter. He said, Nico, please ask if Bitcoin funds dispersed to the truckers were actually utilized or remain unmoved. Genuinely would like to know what happened to the funds once they were in the hands of the truckers now that were almost a year out. Uh, you know what? I have no idea. I haven't checked. I don't know. I know the addresses, a number of the addresses are in this class action lawsuit, which I have to explain shortly. I mean, you talk about, you know, pushback. We have now, um, it's swelled to a $458 million lawsuit against all of us who participated in the trucker convoy, or at least the leadership. And that is a lawfare lawsuit issued by political parties. That's where we've gone. That's how, that's how aggressive things are becoming, right? Uh, but in terms of what people did with money, uh, like I'm of two minds about the, that we need more privacy because I don't want to look at other people's money. Whatever they did with it, that's for them. Uh, it was distributed to them. I didn't go follow up and see who used money, who didn't use money. I have, I have no idea. Um, but in the class action lawsuit, there were something like 100 or 200 wallets that were listed. I, I think those are the wallets for the truckers. I don't know. I never went to verify all of them because there was some point like 200 and something wallets that were listed as suspicious by uh, the people who uh, advocated the class action suit. What I know, what I can guarantee is that the money was given to the truckers, that they, they each got a paper wallet from Caribou when he and everybody else were distributing it to them. But for my mindset, it's like, okay, great. That's your money. You do what you want with it. Gotcha. So let's, let's kind of go back to uh, talk a little bit about the, you mentioned it earlier on, right? About this idea, and we're seeing this dramatically, this idea that let's call them the collectivists, right? Not to be specific or anything. Mm -hmm. This idea that they're using lawfare successfully to silence dissenting speech. And and you saw this, it also, you you saw this with with a Bitcoin or two with Hodlnot, right? You saw yep. this with 100%. CSW using, taking advantage of the libel laws in the United Kingdom, right? To go after dissenting speech, to scare the crap out of everybody else, not to speak up against him. And I think we're seeing that a lot. For example, the the case with um, specifically the case with Alex Jones, right? Whether you agree with his political beliefs or not or irrelevant, it's very clear that they um, that the, it was almost a billion dollars, man. You know, well, that so, was two point two point seven five trillion dollar lawsuit that they're issuing against him. 
two those people are psychos by the way i mean yeah you don't like the guy i get it but you gotta stop but yeah it's it's crazy so and and there was actually some laws that were being passed in canada um that were also giving a monopoly basically to a monopoly basically to the government to kind of control speech in a way. It was a very big deal specifically for Canadian YouTubers. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Bill C-11. They want to regulate what people say um, about the government or whatever topics that they want on the internet. And they essentially want, you know, creative control of what you say on the internet and the news should be for officials from official sources like the CBC, the state broadcaster sound familiar. Uh, so that's why I said, you know, Trudeau is Canada's Hugo Chavez. Uh, they're doing exactly the same thing. And it's all the collectivist mindset. Every time I hear somebody say the greater good, I just want to smack them. Like, no, no, you're an individual. And this is where, uh, this is the, the common denominator of this philosophical battle around the world. So when people say, you know, Nico, you're getting too political. You're not, you're getting philosophical. Uh, that's the problem where things are, are at right now, that we have um, a section of our population around the world that has been radicalized or brainwashed. You cho- choose your, your adjective um, to believe, to, to be against their own individualism. And they don't realize what they've lost until they have the boot of the government on their neck. And by that time, uh, it's too late. So I think this is not a political uh, culture war that we're involved in. It's a very serious philosophical culture war. So, and what do you mean? It's it's fascinating. And I completely agree with you because it seems like there's two opposing forces and it, it always goes back to the individualist versus the collectivist. What is this philosophical war that's happening? Well, it's, it's exactly that, the collectivist versus individualism. And we also see the binary thinking, which really perpetuates that. And that comes from political parties and the media, where everybody's got to go into one or two camps. Um, you know, and to show like, how almost sadistic it becomes, and I don't mean to be cynical, but when you nowadays, when you campaign and knock on a door, because I ran for parliament several years ago, you're not going to talk to the person behind the door. I couldn't believe I was being taught this. You don't go to talk to the person. You're going to talk to them just to identify, are they a one, two, or three? Are they a supporter of yours? Are they the opposition? Or are they a swing voter? And if you're a swing voter, you get a second vote, a second visit and regular telephone calls. That's it. They're ignoring everybody else because they want to put people into this binary worldview. And that's why when I am trying to get this whole idea out, when I was on Michaela Peterson's podcast, I was explaining, you know, my philosophical, um, I guess, foundation. I'm trying, this is how I was able to reach people on the other side that I look at it as it's not a left or right argument anymore. We don't Correct. live in 17th century Fr- France. That is out of date. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my, politi- my worldview, I like the goals of the left. I like the systems of the right. And I like the freedoms of the libertarian. And depending on what the topic is, I and we all live lie somewhere within that triangle. Because, listen, the left always cries about we want to help people. Well, we all want to help people, right? But we don't want to help people 
at the expense of everybody else. We want to we don't shoot holes in the boat so we all sink together. So all, all these disciplines have something to add and we need to get away from the left-right binary worldview, which is exactly what our media and our political class are trying to reinforce us with and radicalize us with. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, and that's something that we try to echo a lot on on Simply, is this idea that the I believe that 99% of the issues between the left and the right will be gone as soon as you fix the money. I think that the left has, it's like, look, nobody should have two jobs to just be able to make ends meet. And the right has some points where it's like, look, leave me the hell alone, like sovereignty, right? Mm -hmm. But I believe that the 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 way that the system works, it's like, look, if we get the Democrats, at least in the United States, or we get the Republicans in office, all the problems are going to go away. And no, because they both do the same thing, which is they print money. And in the process of printing that money, it's a wealth redistribution mechanism from the people that need it most, the lower and middle classes that don't have the means to save in assets that benefit from asset inflation. Right. You're you're living paycheck to paycheck. You're saving in cash. That's what you have in your they even have the audacity to still have something called a savings account. You're, you're not you're not saving anything in a savings yeah. account. It's literally it's a you're using. <laughs> yeah, it's a depreciation. They should they should rebrand the name, you know, so and I and I and I fundamentally agree with you because there are so many things that I agree with on the left. and There's so many things that I agree with on the right, but it's so polarized and and honestly, BJ, I think they do it on purpose, man. Oh, I, I know they do. Yeah, 100%. it's a strategy. It's the divide and conquer strategy, and that's why, you know, in terms of when I was, I was trying to do the the outreach and branding and how are we going to tag this this movement going into Ottawa in January, you know, I was thinking about. I've told this a few times. I was thinking back to a Grateful Dead concert or De- Grateful Dead concerts and Allman Brothers concerts I used to go to when I was a kid. That it was all like the 1960s, peace and love and freedom, and everybody loved each other. What was amazing about Dead Concerts was you could have a guy who's like a billionaire investment advisor, and you have somebody who's a janitor. But when you went there, they all agreed at least on the idea of respecting and loving one one another. And that's why the Freedom Convoy became peace, love, unity, and freedom. That's that. Those were the fundamental four pillars of the freedom company. You know what happens when you did that? I had people that were like insane lefties, man, coming into Twitter spaces, talking to me and saying, yeah, you know, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but we need to start to respect each other and love each other again. You know, like, yeah, I disagree on this little issue, but let's 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 leave the things we disagree on right now. And let's focus on what we do agree. And that was a threat to the political class because we had right. what you had in Venezuela. We didn't have the activist class protesting. This was small business people protesting Mm -hmm. and working class people were protesting. And that becomes a threat to the homogeny and they need to crush it. That that is the worst nightmare because that is apparently how they portray that's where their power is supposed to come from. And the fact that it's not coming from there scares the living crap out of them because they know they're they're the elite or the people at the very, 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 very bottom that they can give handouts to. But everybody, a, yeah. I have a request. Can we not call them elites? I call them global global scavengers. I think scavenger is a more appropriate term. 
well, we have different terms here on Simply. Opti calls them um, uh, yeah, no. something parasites. Um, uh, I call them monetary demons. So it's great. We all have you know different vocabulary for for all these people. Um, but so before we talk about your book, let's talk about Bitcoin's role in Canada. How do you see? Bitcoin fitting into all this because Canada is going through, I would say, a very historical upheaval. You know, the the relationship between a citizen in Canada and the government, I think, changed um, when oh, the yeah. truckers protest happened. So where do you think Bitcoin fits in all this? Well, I've been spending a lot of time and, you know, partially intentionally and partially partially unintentionally just orange orange pilling people uh, because there are so many people that started following me and reaching out to me like man you got to see some of the emails that we got uh, or the messages that i got uh, during the protest of i talked about one of them on a stream the other night you know these two women it was almost the identical message with two people that um, they wanted to commit suicide the only reason they didn't they didn't know what to do with their kids and so they've been trying to think about a strategy for their children after they commit commit suicide and then they saw these trucks that decided that they're going to rise up and they're going to come across the country. They're going to speak for them. And it, it breathed new life into them. And they finally had hope, uh, which is why, you know, we, we I subtitled the book, The Trucker Convoy That Gave Us Hope, because that's exactly what it did. Because I, those, some of those emails were crushing, man. They're difficult to read. So all of, So many of these people... Uh, continued to interact with me and came in Twitter spaces with me. And I, I, I don't shove Bitcoin down people's throat uh, on my daily. Like I do a daily stream on my YouTube channel about positivity and politics and looking at it from a positive view. And I'll mention Bitcoin here and there and whatever. And you know what? Eventually, especially because of the trucking convoy, now they're curious. And, you know, I think of Risa. Risa comes into, you know, DJ Satoshi. You've had him on uh, Simply Bitcoin. So DJ and I started doing spaces at the end of the convoy, uh, you know, beginner Bitcoin Twitter spaces. And I remember Risa, uh, who's local in Toronto, was one of the first people to join. And I haven't spoken to her for, I don't know, a month, month. We always miss each other in the space. And I come in, dude, she's like mining now and nodes and like teaching everybody. And like with me, she's like, okay, I'm so confused. I don't know how to, I don't know how to buy Bitcoin. And now she's like, the Bitcoin queen, and she's orange pilling all her friends in her regular daily life. And she knows it's a process. It takes bringing it up once in a while, letting them get curious. And so it's just been naturally going on. So I was on this stream two days ago, a guy who was covering the Freedom Convoy, who I didn't know about because I was so busy with other stuff, built a huge audience. We're talking. I mentioned Bitcoin. And he says, oh, yeah, wait, I got to ask you something. I don't understand this Bitcoin. What is this? <laughs> right? Like, I'm like, what do you mean? You know, he's, 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 he's about your age and he's kind of, he has a technical guy and whatever. Um, and it was a full orange pill moment in real time. I can send you the timestamp and I checked the comments the, the, the next day. And there were a whole bunch of people in the comments saying, I finally understand Bitcoin. Uh, you know, BJ explained Bitcoin to me. This is great. Like a whole bunch of them. And we're going to be maybe doing some stuff together in the future. Um, and I sent an email off to Jeff Booth, who lives in the same province as him, and saying, listen, Jeff, I might be doing something. If so, do you want to participate? 
And he's like, you know me, if I can ever lend a hand and you're, you're local and available, I'm there with you, brother. So yeah, I mean, that, that's my, how I see Bitcoin. I'm not going to, I don't get too technical. I don't get too much into, you know, no, I just, listen, it's freedom. You don't understand how the current financial system works, but you use it. You don't necessarily have to understand how Bitcoin works to use it and to understand that it is full financial freedom. And it's a hedge against the government that saved the lives of a number of truckers who fought, who were worried that their truck was going to be impounded because they missed a couple of truck payments. But Bitcoin came along and there's a couple of them that just broke down in tears and said, thank you so much. My wife has been ca calling me. We don't know what we're going to do, our mortgage payment and the truck payment and whatever. And uh, Bitcoin came through and saved them. Man, and, and it, it, what's, what's astonishing to me is that you hear this story over and over and over oh, yeah. again, right? With your life, with my life, with Opti's life, right? It's this story of hope, right? Before, you know, I went, you know, just head first into Bitcoin. I was very desperate in that moment in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I made a good choice, I guess. Yeah. Um, my life was, it was, you know, it was nihilistic. I like, how am I going to be able to ever afford rent? How am I ever going to be able to save for a future? Much less, how am I ever going to able to afford to have a family? Right. And it's yeah. just like very basic things. And I think that's a cause of a lot of the political polarization, because I think that both sides ideologically know something is fundamentally wrong with the system but their solution to the to the to that broken thing is more <laughs> more politics more yeah. power to these bureaucrats that are the ones that caused the mess in the first place right so thank you for that story because it just puts a smile on my face and once again you have bitcoin and a story of hope and that's incredible anyways i wanted to pivot to talk a little bit about your book benjamin why did you write it and what's it about so it's a story of about the entire experience of the Freedom Convoy. And I wanted two things from it. Well, I wanted a number of things from it. But one of them, I wanted it to be a positive story. I didn't want to talk about, you know, the police cracking down. I wanted people to understand that this movement was all about peace, love, unity, and freedom. And I wanted to tell the story about that. I wanted it to be for people who supported the Freedom Convoy but needed a lot of unanswered questions and context to what was going on behind the background. But also I wanted to be a tool just like Bitcoin where people can read the book, understand it. Now I have greater context and I'm going to give it to my cousin or my friend or my parent who didn't understand the freedom convoy and they can read it and walk away with a positive feeling. So it's not a chrono chronological, uh, you know, order series of dates, it's an adventure story because what we were dealing with was crazy. For example, and there's stories beyond just me. There's a chapter on uh, this YouTube streamer who started during the convoy from the back of a truck in a shed and ended up that the police came in with full uh, autom automatic weapons, like full rifles, and pulled guns on him during his stream. And the only news agency in the world who believed him and he sent them pictures was the New York Times. <laughs> what? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But he did. And it's an amazing story. That's a chapter. Um, we were going to do a chapter on Bitcoin, but we ended up doing 
two chapters on Bitcoin because the story was so compelling that could have been a book in itself. So there's a lot of that. And it starts with the people out West, the people who were organizing it, a couple of chapters following people across the country. We interviewed so many people. Uh, and the best thing about it was the person who taught me to write the book, who is an, who's an editor, a published author, was also an investigative journalist for 30 years. I got to tell you, man, those skill sets were a godsend because he understood how to go back and build a timeline like an investigative journalist was, who's a credible witness, who's not a credible witness, set up interviews with everybody. Like it was amazing. So it's as accurate as possible. Um, you know, I don't think there's many mistakes in there. It's not subjectivist. We tried to make it as objective as possible. And we tried to make it um, a positive and beautiful story. And I sent the script to uh, Jordan Peterson and he was kind enough. Uh, he, he offered to write the endorsement uh, for the book. So on the back of the book is Jordan Peterson's thoughts on the book and why it's important. And I'm hoping that it gets into the hands of as many people as possible, irrespective of political view. It's not about this left, right nonsense. It's just a story about people who felt as though the government was crushing their lives and they needed to do something. And the way they did it is they came together, they loved and supported each other, and they ended up in Ottawa having hot tubs and dance parties and hanging out and barbecues and feeding the homeless. I describe it as Canada's Woodstock moment. And if you see the promo video we did, uh, it exactly shows that that's what it was. It was uh, with some footage on the ground. And it was absolutely amazing. And the bureaucracy is doing their best mm -hmm. to just lie and smear about it. And it's not working because people's eyes function. They really do. And the guy who helped me, last thing I'll say about it, the guy who helped me produce the video for it, and he took five days worth of footage. The reason he did it is his dad was not supportive of the convoy. And his dad is in government, very high up in government. So he put together this video. He did a 45-minute long version of it, sat his father down and said, do me a favor. I just uploaded this video. Do you mind watching it with me? Let's watch it together. And his dad said, yeah, okay, fine. And after 45 minutes, he said he noticed during the, uh, the video, his dad started to turn, like his body language turned. And at the end, he turned the TV off and he said, I can't believe what I believed. I'm so sorry. This was absolutely beautiful. And he was emotionally affected by it as much as all of us were emotionally affected by it on the ground. Changed my life and it changed many other people's lives. And uh, I'm hoping to do that with this book so people understand what exactly transpired there. That, 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 was, a, that was a beautiful description. It, it, it literally gave me chills. What, what do you think, BJ, the truckers convoy what it represented because i'm an onlooker right but yeah. it, it did resonate with me because i i saw what it represented and most importantly it confirmed what i was thinking based on the reaction the, the savage reaction by the state to try to quell this try to label it try to take control of this narrative labeling it as as a uh as a some type of violent insurrection, some type of violent protest when there was bouncy castles, right? And a couple of years before, cities were literally being lit on fire. No, no issue with that, yeah. right? But with this, what it represented, it was so 
scary to the state. Now, question to you, BJ, in Canada's history, what do you think the trucker, do you think it represented, do you think this is a pivotal moment? Do you think things change going forward? Or is was is this just a sign of where things are going? No, I think it's dramatically changed Canada for the better. And I think around the world. I mean, look at um, Justin, uh, Prime Minister Blackface Diversity Trudeau, as I like to call him. Uh, he was, you know, revered all over the world because he looked good on camera. He looked like a young leader. But we all knew what he was. Uh, some people accepted it. Some people didn't. And when, you know, when I was on Simply Bitcoin with you, remember, after that, I went to Colombia and my friends in Colombia call him, what do they call him, uh, Cara Negra Ferelito, is how they <laughs> describe him, right? Um, he's a joke all over the world. And he has now become a lame duck prime minister, uh, even amongst people in his own party. I've had former cabinet members in the liberal party because they know I'm not like a, like I'm pretty open minded. I have a lot of liberal friends as well. Uh, which is maybe why I'm good at communicating with them as well as uh, to conservatives and who reached out to me and said, yeah, we need to move, move on beyond this guy. We were trying to get rid of him during the convoy. We were forming uh, a caucus within the party and he called in the, uh, the martial law uh, before we were able to get rid of him. So yeah, it fundamentally changed. It got rid of all these mask mandates and provincial passports and all that sort of stuff. And the, uh, the, if you want to call it the deep state or the bureaucracy, learn that, hey, hey, guess what? Guess what? We're not actually in charge. We are public servants, which is exactly what I'm going to call them every time I refer to them in my testimony. So I think it completely uh, changed the landscape in Canada. And for me, one of the best, best things is I keep telling people this. And I think we discussed this when I first met you in Miami, I think this moment is going to be a pivotal moment, not only in Canadian history, but in Bitcoin history. I think right now, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're living it, you think, yeah, it's significant, but how big of a deal is it? I'm hoping, and this is why I wanted, this was so important for the book, the Bitcoin story, is that 20 years from now, people will look back at the Canadian convoy which also spawned 30 convoys around the world, including 20,000 truckers in France that descended on the Arc de Triomphe from all over the country. And the police came out with riot and tear gas, and it was, it was a mess in France. Um, and this was the moment that Bitcoin lived up to that hyperbole that everybody said, oh, well, the government's never going to really, you know, seize your bank accounts if you haven't done anything illegal why would they do that they're not going to seize your bank accounts if you misgender somebody that would be crazy right and yet here we are in that world and bitcoin proved beyond it's all its expectations and it's done it before in authoritarian regimes but what made made this unique was this was the western world that decided it is going to strip people of their individual rights and property rights by seizing their property and locking them out of their bank accounts just because a couple of thousand trucks were parked illegally in a city. That's what we did. We, they parked illegally. It was a protest. Maybe it's illegal. We parked without a permit and they brought in martial law. But Bitcoin was there to save some of those truckers from losing everything they had. And I think in 20 years from now, 
that's going to be the first thing that will be in the Bitcoin museum, wherever that is. And, and I, I fundamentally agree with that. I, I never forget it because we, we're, you know, we're slaves to the news cycle here. It's simply to, to do a good job for you guys. I never forget uh, the lady, um, the blonde lady that she was something part of the finance and the look on her face when she could not admit that she could not freeze those Bitcoins. They, they postured like they could. <laughs> They postured. No, no, no. We are in. We are in control here. I'm the captain now. And then all of us on Bitcoin, yeah. all of us on Bitcoin Twitter were just like, "Holy crap! They can't do anything. They're powerless here." And then they started. You remember that? They started uh, threatening the Kraken CEO. They started yeah. threatening the uh, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong because yeah. they were like, "Listen, guys, we can't protect you, but you could take self custody." And then the Canadian government's like, how dare you tell people to take control of their money so the that we can't take it away from them? Remember oh. Nunchuck's response to the Ontario yes. Superior Court? Oh, man, that was amazing. <laughs> but you know what's funny? It's just a little tidbit. Uh, that woman, Krista Friedland, who has no finance background but is our finance minister and deputy leader, which doesn't happen unless you have a dictatorship, also famed for writing George Soros's biography. <laughs> like, see? Yeah. She's part of the WF and she wrote his biography. She's a Soros disciple. I, I swear to God, like, <laughs> I'm not kidding. You think reality is stranger than fiction. It's like, crazy. It, you, it's crazy you think, oh, man. I was thinking about going in to do my testimony in the commission, uh, wearing big prosthetic boobs and a blonde wig, right? I thought, I thought that would be seeing, you haven't seen that, that whole thing that went on in Canada? Okay, hold on. I'm still stuck up on this. She wrote the biography for Soros, <laughs> yeah. and that was the lady freezing people's bank account. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, man. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she, she bought into that whole, you know. Well, maybe she, likes, maybe she likes Ethereum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. BJ, I really enjoyed this, man. Thank you so much. Um, when does uh, when does this book drop, and where could people uh, where could people get it? Okay, so you go to honkingforfreedom.com, and uh, you can do pre-orders. I think we're gonna have we have two of the platforms already up, Amazon and Kobo. I understand Amazon. We're also gonna have Etsy and eBookit, so you'll be able to pre-order now, and it's finally gonna release. On November 11th, that's it, honkingforfreedom.com. On November 11th, which is, which is very significant in Can Canadian history and in the Commonwealth, that's Remembrance Day. Because I think some people in our political class need to be reminded why people were killed and maimed uh, in this country's history. And it's not so um, a bunch of politicians can play footsies with lobbyists and central bankers. That's not what they, what they put their life on the line for. So honkingforfreedom.com, and we're also going to, we're doing some events already, and we're going to have a book launch. We now have, I think, four cities. I'm going to be at the Bitcoin, in addition to that, uh, Bitcoin Massachusetts in Boston on November 17th. So if you're in, Ma in your mass, you want to come out, come hang out. And then I'm doing uh, daily live streams, or almost daily live streams when I'm not in the truck, honkingforfreedom.locals.com or youtube.com slash bjdonline, my initials. And then, you know, DJ Satoshi wasn't here. I think he's still in the comments. I go to his spaces all the time. 
Uh, I try to get into uh, Bitcoin Cafe uh, all the time. And you guys, I try to participate when you're around, when I'm in the truck, because I want to give as much support to you as I possibly can. And maybe we should do an event together. Like, dude, Miami is my favorite city in the world. So if we, um, when I come down there, because there's some people at a place called Mar-a-Lago who want to meet me again, um, I may be doing something with them there. And if so, maybe we should do something in Miami. Because I just want to meet all these people, A, in Bitcoin, and all these people who supported us and showed nothing but love for the Canadian truckers. And I want to thank them in person. That, that, that's important to me. Yeah, the, the, there's a tremendous, you'll find a tremendous amount of solidarity, specifically in Miami, because oh, totally, the, the city is uh, filled of Cubans and Venezuelans. And uh, we Bro, every Uber wanted to take a picture with me when I was there it was crazy. Yeah, <laughs> we, uh, we know, we we've seen collectivism firsthand, you know, what's at stake more than anybody. And we see the signs, and they're always the same. And it's a slow creep, and uh, a lot of people believe in the U.S. Unfortunately, can never happen here. Um, and I think that I think history will show um, Canada. I think this is a global phenomenon. What you were talking about earlier, uh, BJ, um, that these times we were awfully, we were very, very close to it. Um, but I think uh, I think there's a happy ending at the at the end. So I'm I'm 100%. looking forward to that. It, Corey says it best, right? The bright orange future. I think Bitcoin will will facilitate that. So Anyways, there's not a golden age in our future. It's an orange age in our future. It's it's an orange age. You know, gold <laughs> gold gold is a shit coin. You don't need gold anymore. So the Enlightenment 2.0 is orange. It's orange. It. I'm it's down orange. with that, man. <laughs> it's orange i like so i like i'm gonna tell you guys physical gold i'm a fan of because i could hold it and it's yeah, okay. nice but it how are you gonna store a, a you can't you can't transport that easily yeah you when you want to get out of the country and hugo chavez is looking for your gold like you know you couldn't even ship a, a cell phone into most latin american countries because they get stolen right like exactly don't understand how bad customs are in many countries around the world they're going to ship gold out what are you crazy they'll take it right away you can't memorize 12 words in your mind and store some gold you know and and that's the <laughs> that's the that's the fundamental weakness that that's the that's the point there um but bj like i said this was a pleasure guys check out his book honkingforfreedom.com what how would you describe it real quick like if you were to describe the book what what would you what would you say Honestly, it's a true life, real life adventure story, but it's positive and it's loving. And there's some bumps in the road. There's no question, but it's going to leave you with a sense, I think, of pride and that things are going to get better because I think we've hit the peak of maximum yes. stupidity and it's going to be, this is a generational change. This is not going to happen tomorrow. And back to the politicians, when you're asking me, one politician is not going to change this. The change is going to happen over decades, but I think we've hit peak stupidity and now we're going to be recovering slowly over time. I, I fundamentally agree with you, but it requires vigilance. It requires sure. action. You have to stay on top of this. And unfortunately, you have to get involved somehow, you know, and, and again, like this is a weird information war. Right. So every tweet, every video, every piece of engagement, it, it functions as, you know, I always say it. I'm like, if bull, if uh, tweets are bullets, 
memes are artillery, right? And this is the type of war that we're fighting for, that we're fighting. And it's, it's basically narrative trench warfare, winning over hearts and minds and telling them, Hey man, it's freedom. You know, and I just want to, you know, one last shout out to Ellie and the team that put together the cover for the book, the front and back, set up all the infrastructure. You know, they left Venezuela for a reason, because much like you, uh, they lived it and um, everything was paid for with Bitcoin. Beautiful. And, and it's crazy how much you hear that so many times. Um, a buddy of mine had to leave Venezuela. He took his wealth with Bitcoin because it's the awesome. only thing he could cross the border That's with. Amazing. So it's beautiful. That's awesome, buddy. Anyways, BJ, thank you so much. Would love to uh, hope to have you again in the future. Could you could you give us any insights uh, about some things going on? Um, some some exciting things that are could be potentially happening in the next six months. Uh, there's a lot. I don't want to give away too much, but we will be doing a lot of live events. So I will put be putting that calendar of live events at honkingforfreedom.com uh and uh, come on out everybody just come chill let's hang out like you and i did at the bitcoin meetup uh we all got to start doing that and the other thing is we got to get away from exclusively uh, being over camera over the internet we got to breathe the same air from time to time when we can and uh, make this all peaceful and loving and all of us coming together not as a collective but as individuals Correct. But that have common, common underlying values around love and freedom. Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head and I saw it in the chat too. throw away the left and the right tropes it's about individualism versus collectivism. That's what it's always been about. Anyways, BJ, right, I appreciate it. I'm going to put you backstage and roll it out. Let's do it. All right, brother. Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. Mm -hmm.